when you are on the internet, clicking on links, no, I want to just say two things. Number one, you will find no information of any use whatsoever. <laughs> and number two, almost anything you click on is a giant lead generation tool. And a broker will call or a franchise representative from a brand will call and you will be forever on their drip campaigns. So that's what happened to me as I start clicking around and literally my cell phone is lighting up with calls from franchise brokers. Does this sound familiar to any of you who have considered joining a franchise as a business owner? If so, you're not alone and is precisely one of the reasons that I decided to start Franchise Rising to deliver helpful and informative education and stories week after week to those who are serious and don't want to fall prey to the old school salesy spammy tactics. In this episode, Jane begins by telling us exactly how she got into the franchise world as a franchise consultant, otherwise known as broker. After that, she does a phenomenal job breaking down the different pathways you can take to joining a franchise, whether as a passive investor, single unit operator, or even an area developer. If this interests you, kick back and enjoy the show. Are you a woman who's considered investing in a franchise or running one yourself? Are you searching for honest information to help you make the best decision for your future? Have you ever worried about whether the information you're finding has your best interests in mind? We're here to help. Welcome to Franchise Rising. I'm your host, Aaron Carpenter. Let's get going. Welcome to the Franchise Rising podcast. This is the show where experts, franchisees, and franchisors share stories, strategies, and expert advice for women who want to own or invest in a franchise. The information on this show is not intended as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy a franchise and is for information purposes only. Welcome back to another episode of the Franchise Rising Podcast. Today we have Jane Stein on from Your Franchise is Waiting. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. So Jane is a franchise consultant, also known as a broker, and her company, Your Fr Franchise is Waiting, provides a lot of services to people looking to buy us to buy a franchise. Jane, do you want to dive in a little bit deeper and tell us about exactly what you do uh, for franchisees, for businesses? Sure. Um, I work exclusively with uh, mostly women, by the way, not exclusively with women, but exclusively with people uh, looking to buy a business. Sometimes they come to me already thinking which business they want to buy. That's usually not the case. Usually they have been referred to me by some sort of a executive coach or counselor who they're struggling with, you know, they're burnout on their career, they're 20 years in, and they're thinking that a franchise might make sense for them because they've never owned a business before. And they really don't, you know, know how to go about selecting the right business model for them. So what I do is very much like being a realtor. We, through a series of conversations, will talk about what it is that my client is 
looking for in terms of what are the lifestyle objectives, what are the income objectives, what are the investment parameters, uh, you know, how do they envision the perfect business, what are their resources and who are their resources in terms of, you know, is there somebody in their family that they're thinking of going into business with or that they could put to work as a manager or do they have a lot of network and, and connections within you know, law enforcement, I'm just throwing that out. So, I, you know, we really want to get as much data as possible, which we do through a series of telephone calls and some online profiling. I have some questionnaires and I use a psychometric assessment, which is very well known in the franchising world called Zoracle. And then I go to work doing a complete market analysis of where that client lives, what's there, what's not there, who's there, how much money do they have, how old is the housing stock, all that kind of stuff. And then I begin to uh, introduce them to four or five businesses that I think are a good match for them given their transferable skills, their lifestyle objectives and goals, their uh, you know, income objectives, and I don't think the area is saturated for that particular business model. And of course, you have to do territory checks because it might be a great business. I pop into my head and I think, oh, I, you know, this will be perfect for her. And then I go to look, territory sold out. So all that is done, um, you know, by a franchise consultant, or at least that's the way I work. I have to say, I don't believe that's how most franchise brokers work, but it is the way I work. And uh, ultimately, I'm compensated if they ever invest in a business that I've introduced them to. So it's a good value proposition. It's just like being a realtor. You know, you're not paying me a commission. The selling franchise is uh, paying me a commission ultimately. And that's kind of nice because it's not my job to sell my clients any particular franchise. I really am incentivized to try and find them the right business for them where they can be successful because I live on referrals, right? And so I'm not selling any particular franchise. I'm very unbiased. Um, and that makes me a, a very good sounding board uh, as I walk my clients through the due diligence process. So that's what I do and how I do it. That's wonderful. Now, Jane, it, it sounds like you have an extremely thorough process and that you really care of, about the ultimate outcome and, and that you are really looking at your clients and their individual needs as, as we all should, right? Right. Were you always involved in franchising? What, what else have you done in the past that's led you to where you are today? Well, for uh, many years, from the time I was uh, 26 to about 47, I was a uh, senior wealth manager with what is now Morgan Stanley. And I, in that career, also focused on women um, and, in fact, ran a series of workshops called Money Matters for Women. And I built a very large practice in Houston, uh, starting with, this will age me, I, I started with E.F. Hutton in 1984. With what? I'm sorry? I know. Your age, I'm right? Sorry. It's E.F. Hutton, who was very famous for an ad campaign where they said when E.F. Hutton speaks, you know, and then, you know, it was just this crazy little cute ad campaign. E.F. Hutton sort of 
took a nosedive. It got purchased by Shearson and then Lehman Brothers and Shearson Lehman and then American Express. And it went through a series of iterations. I literally never changed my office. And I was there for 20 plus years. And uh, that firm is now Morgan Stanley. When I retired, it was Smith Barney Morgan Stanley. That was our crazy name. So now it's just Morgan Stanley. So in that career, I helped women understand their money, you know, uh, understand investments, not be afraid of investments, um, and really help empower them to understand where their uh, money was and how it was invested and what the risks potential reward was and what the risks were. And it was interesting. I never thought of it until I got into this, but that business was all about managing passive investments. And there's sort of not much you can do. You can put in, you know, you can manage your risk through asset allocation. You can manage your risk, but it's beyond your control ultimately how much money you're going to make, right? Because your money's in the market. So cut to how, what happened was I retired. I moved to Boulder, Colorado to raise my two boys. Um, the oldest one goes away to college and I realized I am bored out of my mind and I needed something to do. I really needed a challenge, but I, under no circumstances, wanted to go back and do what I had already done. I'm one of those people that likes change, always looking forward, always wanting a new challenge. So I didn't want to go back and do that. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And the thought came into my head, which may be coming into your listeners' heads, you know, gee, maybe I should just buy a franchise. I mean, I had assets, right? And I thought, my, my perception was that you could just like, kind of like put a little money into something and somebody else would run it for you. I literally thought that's how franchising worked. <laughs> and so I'm fooling around on the internet, clicking around, I'm Googling, you know, best franchises for women, best franchises for Boulder. And what happens, and I'm sure your audience uh, has figured this out or they will, when you are on the internet, clicking on links, no, I want to just say two things. Number one, you will find no information of any use whatsoever. <laughs> and number two, almost anything you click on is a giant lead generation tool. And a broker will call or a franchise representative from a brand will call and you will be forever on their drip campaigns. So that's what happened to me as I start clicking around and literally my cell phone is lighting up with calls from franchise brokers. And I just found the whole thing fascinating. I'm having conversations with several of them. Most of them were absolutely horrible, literally like used car salesman type people. One of them I liked quite a bit, and we started talking on the phone, and he walks me through his process, and he's very consultative, and he gives me a disk analysis, and we're, you know, he's asking questions and learning about me, and at the end of which I thought, you know, this business has everything I'm good at. It's research, it's problem solving, it's, you know, it's consultative, it's really learning about your clients on a pretty deep level, it involves some intuition, all of these things that are really in my wheelhouse, and, um, and allow me to work 
with who I want to, when I want to, anywhere in the country or the world, if I'm willing to get up in the middle of the night, if you're in Europe and make phone calls. So um, it, it just sort of hit on all the burners of what I was looking for. And it was really a valuable process in terms of informing me of how I work with my clients. Because, for example, I thought I wanted a recurring revenue model, right? It made sense to me. That makes sense. You make a sale once to a customer and they're a customer for life because you just give them killer customer service, which I know how to do. Um, and then I'm talking to a friend of mine and she said, really? She said, you would rather have the same customers for 20 years, talking to them every week, having the same conversations every week, uh, isn't that why you got out of the business that you were in? And I was like, oh, you're right. I like the beginning of a project. I like a project where I go deeply into a relationship with someone. I put in a huge amount of work up front, lots and lots of work. And then ultimately, they're successful and they sail off into the sunset. I still have a relationship with them. I call them every three months and find out how it's going. And we continue to talk and I continue to try and add value as they own their business. But I've now moved on to other people that are front and center in my life. That's really who I am. I like the variety. Um, so it's that kind of conversation. People don't think about that. Um, and other people are the opposite. They want to have the same relationship with the same people over and over again. They don't like having new people come into the fold necessarily. So anyway, I guess I'm more of a what a hunter, is that what they call it, rather than a who knows. Um, yeah, so that's how I got into it. It's just like I said, I was looking to buy a franchise. It occurred to me that 90% of the people out there that help people buy franchises aren't any good at it um, and because it's not regulated, by the way. So anyone can be a franchise broker. So the bar is quite low. So I, my idea was, gee, I'm going to differentiate. I'm going to get into this business. I'm going to raise the bar. I'm going to provide an entire new level of, of service and resources that people aren't getting elsewhere. And it will be fairly easy to differentiate myself. And that's been my experience. Wow. I love that story. And, and Jane, I think, I think you touched on so many things that our audience can re relate to it. Me as myself as well. You know, first of all, you touch on this, this idea that so many times, well, if we have an open mindset and we like and we're okay with change and we're okay with growth, what happens often is we go down one path expecting one outcome and then we might discover that we're destined for something different. Yes, I've had that happen countless times. And that's okay and that's part of growth and, and that's, so that's what I hear. Not only that, I, what I loved about your story as well is that when you started in the financial services industry in the, in the 80s and went through the 90s, it sounds like you were already kind of a trailblazer and a pioneer. <laughs> yeah, I was part of the boom boom room, if any of your audience knows what that is. So yeah, back in the day, there would be, I would be the one female in the bullpen, right, with 30 guys. So um, and it turns out years later, there were lawsuits around some bad behaviors. But yes, it was, I didn't do that on purpose. I just, you know, I guess I fell into that. Right. And um, yeah, it was, an, it was an interesting time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That's really interesting. And thanks for sharing that. 
And that's, you know, that's a nice segue into today's topic. We want to talk about the different types of potential opportunities within franchising. So you mentioned how when you started, your idea was to buy a franchise, set it and forget it, if you, if you will, <laughs> like Ronco rotisserie. Was it the, the dehydrator or rotisserie chicken? <laughs> one one of those, right. So meaning passive income, have someone management, manage it. And that is one potential outcome or uh, direction that a lot of people think of when they think of franchising. And, and I've even come to discover that there are so many different strategies for growth within this space of business ownership. And I've even been, I'm, I'm discovering new ways that people are doing it every day. And I'd love to hear from you what you've seen in that, in that regard. Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of people have that perception if they're not familiar with the space and they haven't done a lot of reading. Um, and, and a lot of people also think it's, it's all about restaurants. So the, what I want to say is it, you can have that experience of being just kind of an investor model, but you have to have a lot of money because the businesses that can be run really semi-absentee where you're just the money person and you're hiring the people to do it for you. First of all, what every franchisor will tell you is you will not be as successful unless you are, uh, you know, very involved in your business on a day-to-day -day basis, especially in the beginning. So for the first six months to a year, you are going, you know, the most successful business owners are the ones who are just involved. They are there every day. They don't necessarily spend all day every day in their, in their location or in their business or on their business, but they are actively involved in the business. The passive models or what we call the semi-absentee models require a lot of uh, capital because the only way to make significant earning potential net to the bottom line, net to you, the investor, is to have multiple, multiple locations of a, some sort of a brick and mortar location with an entire management team in place, which code for when you're paying the managers, that's coming out of your profit. So the way you make money in that scenario is to have a lot of locations and you know some sort of centralized uh, office where those locations are being run. So that's really kind of a rich person's game. Um, that's what the private equity funds are doing. Um, so what I have um, learned is a lot about um, restaurants. Whenever somebody comes in and they want to own a restaurant, I always say, you know, tell me what it is that you like about that. And a question that I would encourage people asking themselves is over and over again, and what's important about that? Because underlying most people's um, fascination with and, and desire to own their own business, it is a very emotional decision. And it is based on wanting to have control. Perhaps that person has been laid off a couple of times. It, perhaps that person is tired of having other people tell them when they can take their vacation and, and when they can take off to go take their 
kid to the baseball park. Uh, maybe that person is tired of being told uh, what their bonus is going to be, and it has virtually no relation to the efforts. So, I mean, I can't tell you how many women have said to me, I am tired of working my ass off because I do. I will give it my all. I give my boss my all, and I have done that for decades, and not seeing the benefits come to my bottom line. They're going, all of my efforts are enriching my boss, my company, my this. So, I mean, you sort of hear that over and over again. And so that is a very emotional um, thing. And so when somebody comes in and they think they want a restaurant and I ask what's important about that to you, often it is a perception of some kind that is not the reality. So let's just start off right off the bat and talk about restaurants. Restaurants have among the highest failure rates, among the lowest net margins, and the worst possible labor pool you want to be in, particularly now. Okay, so a lot of you know, things that you may not realize is that there is an incredible labor shortage all over the country. And when you're in that minimum wage space, those people don't even show up. They'll fill out the application that you'll think this is going to be the greatest hire ever. They don't even show up day two. Um, that's what you get with that. And you will constantly be struggling with your labor pool in a restaurant business. There's also things like food spoilage. There's just... My, my traditional advice, and almost every restaurateur will tell you this, if you have not owned a restaurant before, don't even consider a restaurant. It's not what you think it is. Um, so then there's the, the, the real big decision that people have to make almost initially is do you want a business that is home-based or where you may have some sort of a warehouse or a location, or do you want a business that's a physical brick and mortar business, retail of some sort, where people are coming in to see you? Now, the pluses of a brick and mortar location is that it can be run semi-absentee. You can find a good manager. You will get walk-in traffic. You can build that business. These are typically B2C businesses. You can throw your money into advertising and have that business build itself over time through reputation and through good reviews and through a lot of advertising. The bad news is you're gonna have a 20,000 a month nut. It might take you a year before you're cash flowing, maybe two, and location is gonna be very, very key. And sometimes you don't know in advance pitfalls that are gonna occur with particular locations. Um, in a home-based business, your cost of startup is extremely low. So with much lower overhead, it's much faster to ramp. It's much faster to cash flow. But the bad news is you often will have to go out and build that business through your boots. If it's B2B, if it's B2C, you're either going to have to put a lot of money into advertising if it's B2C, like blinds or whatever, cleaning, um, or if it's B2B, you will literally have to be the, you know, a, a big networker and willing to go out and make sales calls. So that's, that's the sort of initial conversation that, we'll that somebody should, you know, consider with themselves when they're thinking about what kind of business they want. Did I uh, no, 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 you did. So, so, no, so what we were talking about the different avenues for ownership, and what I hear is we have one end of the spectrum owner operated, and the other 
end of the spectrum, a semi-absentee investment model that is is most ideal for those with a lot of capital like private private equity firms. Yes, and there's things in between. Mm -hmm. You know, there's uh, most businesses. Once you build it, you can put a manager in there and can you know and work as little as you want. Um, There's many many businesses out there where the owner's been doing it for five years and now they're working twenty hours a week. So you know, a lot of things in between. Completely being you know the sole owner operator and being absentee. Most of the time, you're going to be in between. You're going to have some employees. You're going to start out being very, very involved and working 60, 80 hours a week, I'm sorry to say. And then ultimately you get some key people in there and you're able to be better at what you do and scale back your time and your hour and your, um, you know, energy. Okay. So if I'm in a, if I'm in a corporate environment right now and I am working my tail off, I don't even have time to stop and go on interviews to look for another job hardly. And I have a couple kids and, and that's, that's my life. I might even be a corporate executive. And I know someone in, in particular that I'm thinking of. And you know, one comment this person made when they were talking about franchising is, well, or owning a business is, sure, you sidestep out of the corporate gig while you end up working maybe just as much or more with your own business. That's true, you do. He, he, she is absolutely right, especially in the beginning. In the beginning, right? Yep, go ahead. The difference is you love it. And you have control. It's yours. It's exciting. It's, you're building something and it's important to you. Um, So it just feels different. But absolutely, if there's some, uh, and if it's about spending time with the kids, then we look for a business where you're going to have that flexibility of time. Um, it's not the case that you're going to work less hours. You're just going to work the hours that you want to work. Lots of business. My business is a good example. I, every night for an hour or two, I'm doing proposals. But on the other hand, if I want to take the morning off to go play golf, I go play golf. So you get, it's, it's like being a writer. You know what I mean? You, you put in the hours that you want to put in. You're definitely going to put in the same number of hours and, cert, and probably more, uh, especially in the beginning. But, but you're going to love it, and it's going to be when you want to do it. Right. Yeah. In our second episode with Bree Booze, she's a franchisee owner of two Club Pilates. And while she doesn't have kids, at least at this moment, it's one of the things she mentions. She works like works her tail off. However, if she needs to take off at three in the afternoon to go do something, she'll go do that. Correct. She can plug in and plug out when she wants and needs to. And down the road, if she wants to be off during the day and only come into her location two hours a day, she'll hire somebody and she'll give up some of her profits. That's right. You have all kinds of choices. That's right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Great point. Can we talk a little more about those options in between sure. the semi excuse me, the owner operated single unit and semi absentee investment model. And, and I say that as we talk about Brie, because she has two, she had one, she bought a second, She's now looking for a third, and so she's going from a single unit operator to a multi-unit, and there are some other avenues in between, and I just think it would be really helpful for the audience to say it, to hear it from you, especially in light of what you said about having a hard time finding this information on the internet. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're also trying to change the game with that as well, and and provide that information on franchise rising education as opposed to a sales pitch. That's right. Um, 
Yeah. So let's see. Let me just think about the last uh, few people that I've placed. And so, so what Brie is doing is a very typical way that someone can build wealth by building uh, their portfolio, starting with one, then going to the bank. Once you're cash flowing, it's very easy to get a loan for the second. Then once that's cash flowing, it's again, because you have a track record now and the business has a track record. So that is a common way to build a, an empire within a brand. Another common thing is that somebody will start one business, let's just say a waxing business, and then the space next door in the shopping center opens up and they decide to put in a blow dry bar, a franchise. So now you've got all those synergies, massage, you know, things go together. Massage goes with beauty, goes with waxing, goes with lashes. So it's common to sort of start with one, add on, add on, add on, add on, um, because those businesses have similarities. You can cross sell your database. Some of those you could even use the text uh, to move from, from one to the other. Um, that's common ways that people build empires. And once you get up over three locations, of a brand, of a business, that's when the magic happens in terms of higher margins, you can manage your staffing so much more easily, you can move around your inventory where it needs to be. Um, so I've heard it said that all the magic happens with your third location, and I believe that to be true. But another, but not everybody has the energy or the capital to be able to do that. Um, a lot of businesses get scaled uh, in a different way. Um, let's say you are in a blind business. You start out, you can get started in a gotcha cover. Should we mention brand names? It doesn't matter. Any blind business. Sure, we can mention them. Yeah, budget blinds, gotcha covered, whatever. Any of the big blind companies you can, or a closet designing company, you can get started with under $150,000 because in the beginning, you're not gonna have a warehouse. I mean, you might have a little warehouse space to hold your stuff. You may or may not have uh, employees. You're going to, these are businesses that are advertising driven. You're gonna put money into pay-per-click. Your phone's gonna ring. You're gonna go out into the home or whatever the model is. And you yourself are going to estimate and bid the job, get the job. Then you're gonna go and let your 1099 tech go do the install. And the way that business scales is as your business grows and you then have lots of extra money and jobs and not enough employees, you add trucks and you add techs and you add you know, salespeople. So now you took your little initial $150,000 investment and it's quite typical five years down the road to have a million dollar gross revenue business or a $3 million gross revenue business with five trucks and two salespeople. And, and believe me, you're not spending 60 hours a week in that business anymore. Um, you know, unless you're just that kind of person who likes to have that kind of control and needs to be in there. But, you know, those are businesses where the return on investment can be very, very large because the investment is small and they scale very, very easily. And there's a whole huge category of businesses in there. Uh, almost anything in home services. Uh, so, 
So you're, yeah, so what I hear is the gross revenues can grow a lot, but since they're more scalable, your margin might actually increase. You're able to share a lot of your resources like the trucks and the salespeople. Is Absolutely. That, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, wow. once you, and once you hit over a certain level of sales, that just goes right to the bottom line. And eventually you need to add a new truck and a new employee and a new that. And so then your margins go down a little bit again, but then come right, right back up. So um, those are the typical businesses that I work in, not because of any other reason other than the people that I work with for the most part don't have a million dollars to invest. Um, you know, they're coming out of corporate, they're not willing to risk $500,000. Uh, don't forget, it's very difficult to get a loan if you don't have a secondary stream of income or enough of an asset base to cover that loan. We'll be talking about that in another uh, yes. program, I understand. But so a lot of times there's just, there's capital restrictions and those are good, solid, low risk businesses to be your starter businesses. And don't forget, a lot of people get into business, build it up, sell it in five to seven years for significantly more than you paid and move on. Now you've learned, okay, that wasn't for me. Here's what I want to do next time. That's a question that I had about a strategy. Yeah, common. A lot because of people have businesses just to sell them. And from what I understand, the, the, the average time frame or the minimum contract is, what, seven, ten years with a franchise? There's some contracts that are five. Most are ten. So, okay. Okay. Good to know. So I'm, you know, I, I actually have a little bit of a financing background as well. So I think about buy, growth, building equity, reselling, and what that looks like with many different financial vehicles, whether it's uh, the equity market or whether it's with real estate. Mm-hmm. Can the same apply to franchising? And I'm thinking, and just specifically, I'm thinking about some of these franchises that are in an industry that's very tr that has a very trendy uh, product or service. I, I like to think about the Froyo, for example. There were a whole, there was a huge expansion of Froyo shops over the last ten years. Should I be concerned if I'm really intrigued about? buying one of these franchises that's the, that's offering the soup du jour, if you will, because what happens in 10 years when there's a decline? Could I go in there with that stra this strategy that, hey, I see this is on the upswing. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to build it. And, in, and when I have that cash flow and in five years, I'm going to flip it. You can absolutely do that. The trick is, just as it is with the stock is where's the top, where, when to get out. When do yeah. I want to flip? Because you got to get out before it peaks. Um, but absolutely, a lot of people have that as their strategy. I mean, when I ask people, what's your goal? I can't tell you, probably two out of 10 say, my goal is to invest in a business with a little bit of capital that I can sell in seven years. Seven years seems to be the magic number because it takes you five years to build a business. And then you don't want to be right up against your contract either, your renewal. So five to seven years. Oh, you, you want a little barrier so you're not under pressure to sell for the wrong price. Would that be it? Okay. Right. And so what happens is, so what people don't realize is in a franchise, the contract period is, you know, that's the, that's the initial agreement that you sign, which is under certain provisions of your original agreement. In 10 years, if you want to renew that franchise agreement, and most people do if the business is successful, you have to sign whatever terms are in place at that time, which are not going to be as attractive 
right? Mm -hmm. You got in when the royalties were 5%, now it's seven. Or, you know, there's just changes. And sometimes if it's a physical location, when you go to renew your contract, they make you spend 50,000 or $100,000 to get your, you know, physical location up to the new brand standard. Mm -hmm. So it is quite common that people want to get out before that, you know, that renewal period, just because they suspect when they go to renew the contract is not going to be as favorable as the one they negotiated when that brand was not as big, for example. So seven years is pretty typical. I I would never recommend anybody go into something that they believe will be trendy. Mm. Um, You know, the objective is to find a business that's timeless where it will just grow a product or service that people will continue to want. I do struggle with that like lashes. Yeah. I'm not sure if people are always, always, always going to want to have lashes. I can just tell you it seems to have no end in sight. But maybe it's not going to be physically attractive to have big, thick, long lashes in 10. You know, it's possible. So, Such yeah. a great point. Okay, what about on the – oh, was, sorry, was there more? No. What about the flip side of that? I'm coming in. And, and Jane, let me know if you can help our listeners with this as well. I'm coming in. I don't want to start from scratch even from franchise system scratch, I want to go in and buy that one that someone else is flipping because they already have a steady cash flow. Yep. Um, So yes, franchise resales are robust. There are robust offerings. I, I do have access to some of those, but I don't have access to all of those. So you'll want to, for your listeners, they'll want to connect with a good franchise consultant slash broker, as well as a business broker in their community. Um, because some franchises are known for helping franchisees exit. And to me, that's a really good thing. Dwyer Group is famous for that. They will actively market their franchisees' resales. Wow. Other brands, you're sort of on your own, you know, so you just got to go hire a business broker and they are going to, you know, evaluate your business, market your business, uh, you know, and you're going to pay 10% of your selling price for that privilege, but that's what you're going to need to do. So I would, I would say that you have to kind of work all the angles. I'm not a business broker. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, from time to time, be aware of resales that aren't in the business broker community, because as I mentioned, there are some franchisors who don't work within the broker community. They, they sell their resales internally, but you got to kind of work it on all angles. It's hard to find an existing business in your town, in your budget, that happens to be something you're interested in. That's, that's, a, that's a needle in a haystack. But, mm. but I definitely work with clients who only want a business that's already cash flowing, and I do my best, and it's just there's smaller, there, there's less to choose from. Less to choose from. Okay. And that's really encouraging that there are, there are franchise brands and, and uh, parent organizations that help in that selling process like the Dwyer group. Because what it, what that tells me is they're highly concerned with the satisfaction of their franchisees, which helps the, that's just what it tells me, which helps the entire system itself. It's like having, you don't want to have an unsatisfied employee because you know, what a bad apple rots the bunch. And maybe they're not unsatisfied. Maybe there's just a shift in their needs and they can't. And for whatever reason, that business is no longer right for them. But if they're helping them on the exit end, then they're helping the entire system 
stay yep. satisfied. Yep. I, I always tell people one of the first things you want to try and assess is if it's a franchisee-friendly brand. Mm. Small brands can be franchisee-friendly. Large brands can sometimes not be franchisee-friendly. Um, but you definitely want to have a franchisee-friendly brand. And in their defense, some of the smaller groups that may have less than 500 locations, the reason they don't have a system in place for helping their franchisees sell is they might try, you know, if they know of someone, I work with a brand right now who, if they know that a franchisee is thinking of getting out, when they get a lead in that city, they're of course going to do all they can to match make. Uh, but they don't have the resources that a Dwyer group has. A Dwyer group has, you know, 11 brands and 3,700 franchisees. It's, they have a lot of money. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just... It, sometimes they don't, they don't have the resources to aggressively help you. But it's one of the questions you want to ask is, how do you help me when it comes time to sell? They may say, well, we'll help you deal. We'll help you assess your evaluation. Uh, we will certainly help you uh, try and find candidates through our normal lead generation process. I mean, you want to hear what they have to say when you ask that question for sure. What are other some of the other markers that you can use to figure out if it's a franchisee-friendly brand? Because they all tell you that they have great systems and support on their website. Yeah. Um, honestly, the rubber meets the road when you do validation. We should have had a whole – we should do a future podcast on how to evaluate a franchise. But, um, because that's – the due diligence process is, is really one of the more interesting to me. Um, but you, you have to find that out in validation. And you can't ask simple questions like, how have you found the support you know, you really do have to dig in when you're speaking with existing franchisees and you have to speak with more than, you know, two, and I would suggest seven to 10. And you have to ask those hard questions, you know, gee, can you give me an example of how your franchise is helping you with marketing? And you know, can you give me an example of, of how you think corporate helps you deal with, uh, you know, difficult employees? Have they helped you with hiring? Have they helped you? Um, do they, how do they handle it when you're not doing well? If you have a, a six month period where you're not doing as well, do they reach out to you? I, you just really have to dig in and you're going to find that out. It's amazing what franchisees will tell you, including I have gotten no support whatsoever. <laughs> you know, yeah, they, uh, they'll, they'll share a lot of information. Wow. So you really can only find out about how good the franchise or support is, is by having good conversations with franchisees. Yeah, that, that's very helpful. And that, that also rang true in a recent episode that we had with Angela Cote. And she talks about the five rock star questions that you should ask as a franchisee. Like and, and she talked a lot about the validation. So we should definitely have you on another episode and talk about it and hear your perspective because I'm sure there are a lot, a lot of golden nuggets that we haven't heard before. Sure. Happy to. Are there any other paths that, that you've seen w uh, women or, or men take as franchisees in terms of ownership? Sure. Um, don't forget about area developer. Don't forget uh, about masters. That's it. Okay. Um, you know, Please. Those are those are good options for the right person, that real highly skilled executive um, 
who has the wherewithal, both financially and skill set wise, to build an empire. Um, area developer can be an extremely profitable way to go. It looks different with every brand. Uh, it will tend to be the newer brands because the big established brands with over a thousand locations, those opportunities are long gone. So it's higher risk, higher potential reward because the brand is new enough that they want and still have areas available to be developed. Um, but, you know, just to simplify, that's a situation where often you take a large, large area, let's say an entire state, or it could even potentially be three states, and you pay, um, instead of a, a franchise fee, you pay a development fee, and it can be quite substantial to $300,000 for the right uh, and the privilege to develop out those state, that state or those states. Uh, you are then in the business of not only selling franchises to other people, but you're in the business of supporting all the franchisees in your area. You'll typically have a, a pilot location through which that you do all of your training and learn yourself about the business first before you go out and start actively recruiting franchisees for your area. And it's quite typical that you'll get 50% of the franchise fees of every franchise sold in your region, territory, whatever it is, as well as 50% of the royalties. So uh, that is a real empire builder way to approach franchising and for the right person with sales and management background and enough capital to make that happen. That's a great, uh, that is a great way to build wealth. Okay. So first, where does that capital go? The two or $300,000 of capital? Because it sounds like you actually act as an extension of the, the development team you are. and the support team for a particular region. Is you that are. right? So yeah. how, yeah, where does that capital go? So that's a fee that you pay the brand for the, to buy your, your, uh, your area. Instead of a $30,000 or $40,000 franchise fee, you're paying a $250,000 area development fee to own Texas, Louisiana, and Florida, or, you know, whatever it is. And depending on how many locations, it's typical, the fee is typically based on how many locations they have mapped out that they want to have in that state. So it may be that they want 25 locations in Texas total, in which case that fee is going to be a little, you know, you're going to, it, uh, the fee is directly proportional to the number of locations they believe that area has capacity for. Okay. And can you dive in, dive a little bit deeper and tell us a little bit more about that ideal person? You said executive sales and management background and yep. well capitalized. Yep. Um, because, you know, and, and if they have some operational background, they just have to have a lot of skills to do that because you're going to be, first of all, and the brand, depending on the brand, they may help you with recruitment, but you're going to have to be generating leads, figuring out how to generate leads in your uh, territory, leads of people who may want to buy a franchise. You're going to have to have the sales ability to be able to take that person through the discovery process 
and sell them their franchise in their city, you're then going to have to have the operational ability to go in to that community and help that franchisee get launched, probably help them with their initial hires, help support them when they're struggling. Now, this doesn't mean that you've done that in your past, but it does mean that you have, that you're very smart, very energetic, you've had some management experience, certainly managing teams. I mean, you know, if you've never managed people before, this is probably not a good fit. If you don't have a sales and marketing background, it's likely not a good fit. But the rest of it, believe it or not, depending on the brand and how supportive they are, um, you know, you should be able to, uh, to, to do this with the help of, because typically home office is doing the initial training. In other words, they're sending your franchisees to corporate to do the initial training, just like they do everyone else. Often there is a developed sales process in place at corporate where there's a four-week discovery process. Week one is the marketing webinar. Week two is the real estate selection webinar. You know, you're allowed to, you will be funneling your candidates through that normal sales process anyway. But it will be your job to close the sale. It will be your job to support those people once they're up and running. And let's face it, you're incentivized to do so. You know, you're making money like in any franchise system. And I'll, I want to get this out there. Nobody makes money on franchise fees. Everybody makes money on royalties. So you are incentivized to have that location do as well as possible because that's how you're that's how you really make your money is when ultimately you have 40, 50 locations and you're collecting 3% of their gross sales and corporate is collecting the other 3%. So you don't have to have ever done that before. It would be useful if you had owned a franchise, but for the most part, you should have absolutely sales and marketing background, management experience, and, and um, really be extremely sharp. Right. So sales and marketing executive, perhaps from a corporation who's burnt out and yeah. wants to turn the tables and exit and, and take on a new challenge that they can control. Yep. Medical sales, I'm thinking mm. backgrounds, um, software sales, uh, recruiting background. Mm. Recruiting background would be ideal, obviously. But mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. There was one more that you mentioned. You talked about master franchising. Master franchising, a lot of people don't know what it means, but, um, and a lot of franchisors actually use this term when they really mean area development. And that's fine, because I think it means different things to different people. But technically, in a master franchise relationship, you are actually executing contracts. So you're legally um, taking on that added burden of executing the physical agreement. If the person wants to sue, they're gonna sue you. Mm -hmm. uh, in an area developer uh, deal, you're actually not executing contracts. The you know Subway is executing the contract with the franchisee. You're simply participating in uh, helping them, supporting them, and, and getting half of the royalties. So you can see that liability-wise, it's, it's much more attractive. And masters tends to be also a term that people use when they're referring to development outside of the U.S. 
like somebody will buy the master's license for Coyote Ugly for, the, uh, for India. That's a master's license. They're going to be doing all of the development for Coyote Ugly in India. 100% all of their investment, all of their risk, all of their liability, they're executing the contracts. That's a classic master's um, opportunity. Okay, great. And you said that they get a higher percentage of the royalties in return yeah, for taking on that. But, but masters yeah. take on more risk and, mm. and should have substantially higher reward. Great. And all of those agreements can be negotiated, by the way, especially mm. area developer and multi-unit. Usually you can have some negotiating power as well. Wow. Wow. That was really, really informative. So just a quick recap from what I heard. We have about the different opportunities we have for our listeners, that is, owner-operator of a single-unit franchise. Mm-hmm. You can then grant, grow into multi-unit opportunities. That means just simply, or um, excuse, me, excuse me, owning more than one. That mm-hmm. could be of the same brand. It could be of some synergistic brands, some complementary brands. Mm-hmm. There's a semi-absentee model that's highly fit for someone with a lot, a lot of capital. We also have area developer opportunities, which are great fits with, for someone who is highly uh, has, has executive, high-level sales and marketing experience, mm-hmm. also highly capitalized, who's driven, energetic. Mm-hmm. We also have master franchising opportunities. And then last but not least, there are opportunities to buy an existing business, often facilitated by a business broker as well, and then, and then take that over. Yep. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. I think you got it. All right, Jane, this has been really helpful. And for some reason, I have a feeling that we just scratched the surface and I can anticipate that more questions might come through. So if our listeners do have more questions, where can they go to ask you? Oh, great. They can email me at either info at yourfranchiseswaiting.com or Jane at yourfranchiseiswaiting.com or find me on LinkedIn, Jane Stein. Jane Stein. And, and for our listeners, I do highly recommend checking out Jane's website, yourfranchiseiswaiting.com. She has several wonderful eBooks that will help you to self-educate throughout that process. Even if you're not quite ready to talk to her or talk to a brand, you know, I know that she's really out here to, to help everyone be more informed. So definitely check those out. Reach out to Jane. And if you have more questions for us or ideas along this line, we'd love to hear it too. Just go to FranchiseRising.com and drop a note in the chat pane. And if if something came up that you'd like us to bring Jane back on for, let us know about that too. Thank you so much. Jane, thank you. And you have a wonderful day. Bye. I know that time is one of the precious things you don't get back. And I really appreciate you taking your time to listen to the Franchise Rising podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you're listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more, hit subscribe. Or if you don't know how to subscribe, just go to FranchiseRising.com slash subscribe and we'll guide you to the right place there. Until next time, have a great week.